This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their multivitamin elite, their whey protein, the super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast, 
with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Jake Hastings. Now, we often refer to ourselves as Jack of all trades, master of none. Well, Jake definitely fits that mold. In his career, he has been a mental health counselor in the Air Force, a park ranger, ski patrol, firefighter, and ranch hand. Jake also has a brother with special needs, so felt compelled to ultimately work with that community. So he recently transitioned out of the fire service to work on a ranch with men and women with Down syndrome and autism. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast and therefore make it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jake Hastings. Enjoy. Well, Jake, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much, James. I am extremely excited to be here. I'm privileged to be on your podcast. Well, I want to say thank you as well to Steve Sakaguchi because he's technically the one that connected us. So I'll put that out there right at the beginning before I forget. Steve is a great dude, and I was happy to hear that he's buddies with you, with you and y'all chat back and forth. And so he's the one that got me listening to your podcast to begin with. So big shout out to Steve. Thanks, man. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Bastrop, Texas right now. It's currently about 105 degrees outside also. So uh, definitely full tilt summer here in Texas. Same here in Florida. I think it was 101 with, I mean, God knows what the humidity is, like a, a million, <laughs> it's like ocean or whatever the, the term is. Horrendous. Yeah. It's crazy. I just came down from Colorado. I was living in Colorado before I moved here and it was 27 degrees and snowing. And within the same day, I drove all the way down to Texas. It was 101 degrees. So quite a, quite a big change. Absolutely. All right. Well, then let's start at the very beginning of your chronological journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Well, I was originally born in Texas. I have, uh, you know, mom, dad, they're both still alive right now. And I've got three brothers. So uh, one older brother. Aaron, he's going to be a big part of the story that we end up talking about, but uh, he has autism. And then I've got two younger brothers. We're all around 11 months apart or so. My mom kept trying for a girl and got four boys. So a little mini army and she gave up after that. So here we are, four boys in the family. And um, we're just a Texas ranch family. Grew up, you know, in the country and doing all the ranch kid stuff, hunting, shooting, going down to the creek to find arrowheads, that kind of, you know, situation. Um, bounced, you know, eventually my parents got divorced. So I partly grew up in Arkansas because my mom moved to Arkansas and my dad lived in Texas. So split those two states back and forth. But yeah, you know, that's just uh, kind of our childhood right there, four wheelers and that kind of thing. And what did your parents do as far as profession? My dad was originally he sold heavy equipment for Caterpillar. 
And my mom, she was a stay-at-home mom. She did some odd and things. She owned a goat dairy for a little while. So we, we, uh, I grew up on a, on a goat ranch, basically, where she milked goats and made soap and candles and things like that. And life kind of took an interesting turn around the age of nine, though, is my dad, he got the call from God to pack us all up and move us to Bolivia, South America as missionaries. So that's when the whole when my childhood basically diverted from everybody else, you know, Texas kid kind of growing up to now we're living in South America. So that's where the story really kind of kicked off in a unique turn. So talk to me about that then. What what was that culture shock like? What were the the things you gleaned as pros from that experience and what were cons? <clears throat> well, pros for sure was getting the adventurous um adventurous the bug in my in my blood basically um from that just seeing different cultures and the, the different ways that people live it was so different from anything that we'd ever seen before uh just getting thrown into it and now I was, I was homeschooled at this time so we didn't go to a traditional school while we were over there but we ended up making friends with the neighborhood kids i had learned to speak spanish just through trial and error you know hanging out with the little kids there and it was great to see people that were just helping other people with no motive whatsoever, no selfish motive. There was just a bunch of people down there just helping other people. And so what my dad did was he went down there and he was working in the mechanic shop. So he was helping fix um, cars and trucks and things like that, that would break down for the other missionaries and for the locals that were in the area that were helping with the mission. And my mom was working in the pharmacy and kind of working as a nurse. She had a lot of, you know, country, type medicine, working with animals and things like that kind of translated over. They would take any help that they could get. And so we were just there as kids running around and enjoying our time. Um, cons, I would say, not a lot of cons that I can remember. Uh, it was a fascinating experience, a big time adventure for us and uh, wouldn't trade that for the world. And it basically shaped me for who I am now. And to this point, I've traveled to 27 different foreign countries so like I said, the travel bug really got deep into me. Beautiful. Well, firstly, um, the call from God. So tell me about that. Was your dad always already, excuse me, was he already deeply religious and that was just the call to leave to go to Bolivia or was there a kind of aha moment in his spiritual journey? That I'm not entirely sure about. Like I said, I was nine, but um, I know my dad grew up in a very Southern Baptist Christian family and uh, my grandparents are very religious and very good people. They took care of anybody they could, always gave money, and were always doing things for other people. Where the call came from, I am not entirely sure. I've actually never asked him directly about that, which probably after this, I should get his side of the story. But uh, all I know is at the time, I mean, this was, you know, this was in the early 1990s. He was making probably close to $100,000 a year, which was a lot of money at the time doing his job uh, selling heavy equipment and just quit it and <laughs> moved us to Bolivia, South America. I remember him bringing home these action packer, you know, the Rubbermaid tubs and basically just packing it all up. And we loaded up and flew to Bolivia and lived in a house that was on the, on the mission or compound, whatever you want to call it. And that's where we lived. It happened really quick. We had a little bit of stint where they sold the house and we moved in with our grandparents for a little bit, but then off we went and that's kind of what kicked off that journey. You mentioned doing uh, or visiting 27 countries. One kind of through line of this podcast is pulling out 
areas that some countries do better than others. I think, perfect example, Norway's um, prison system, Portugal's uh, decriminalization of drugs. I mean, there's so many, so many countries have done some really progressive things that have completely overturned some of the, you know, the the pain and death in those particular nations. Of all the places you visit, were there any that you, when you came back to the states, um, you had this perspective of, huh? that would be a good thing to bring here because they're doing that particular thing better than we are? That's an interesting question. Um, I know I've visited a lot of countries that I could see America is doing way better than a lot of those countries. I mean, there are some countries that I've been to, third world countries, where you could get run over on the street and people will drive around you as you're laying there dying. You know, pretty intense countries. I've been to a lot of third world countries um, for lack of a better term, just, you know, kind of like really terrible countries that have rampant gang violence and uh, drug cartel activity. But overall, as far as good, I would say that Europe has a really well thought out public transit system. And it was very safe, very clean. It was something when I lived in Germany, um, I was in the Air Force, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit, but I was stationed in Germany. And one of my favorite things to do was on weekends, I would take my mountain bike and I would ride down to the local train station. They had a place to put my bike. I would jump on it. I would take the train to some other country, you know, I'd go to France for the day or Luxembourg or something. And I would just take my mountain bike around and I'd go visit castles and I would go visit all kinds of different cool little pubs and things like that. And then just jump back on and head back home. So the public transit system there was phenomenal. Uh, I've never seen that in the United States. And for some reason, there's this weird block. I, I think a lot of people would use it a lot more if it was safer and if it was laid out better. But what the public transit systems do in Europe is they include the countrysides. They include the suburbs. In the United States, it's mostly just inner cities and uh, the immediate surrounding sprawling area instead of going way out to where it could really include a lot of people. So that, that would have to be the one thing I see you could bring over. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree completely. I, I took the Amtrak um, East Coast and West Coast a few times because I worked in summer camps here. So, and there's such an amazing way to see the nation is via rail. But yeah. it it's also kind of a strange paradox because this country was really founded on the rail system. <laughs> and then at some point yeah. they were like, all right, we're good. Let's just start building <laughs> yeah. turnpikes and, you know, everyone has to drive everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, it is. It's yeah. And then you look at the gas prices at the moment, everyone's losing their mind. Well, if you have a system that's got trams and trains and, you know, a lot of pedestrian areas, that becomes far less of an issue. But we've, oh, yeah. we've kind of created this this mentality of firstly, you need to drive everywhere. Everything's drive through. Everything's very far away from each other. And then you have this mentality that, oh, I have to have a you know, a car the size of a school bus to take me, my child, and my dog around, you know? And then, you know, we have the gas prices. It's like, well, yeah, because you've been held hostage to this. You know, imagine <laughs> if you didn't need to rely on that very much, how, how, yeah. how you know, how different that would be. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I look at England, I just see the same thing. I mean, you can take trains everywhere, everywhere. And it's just, it's incredible. And it's, like I said, some of the, the best ways of traveling in Europe is on a train, not in a car. Very much so. All right. Well, yeah. then back to your childhood before we kind of get through to the, kind of the events leading to the Air Force. Again, the contrast between Arkansas and Texas, were there any differences there? I mean, we think of them as somewhat similar, but what was it like through a child's eyes? <clears throat> um, not a, a lot of difference. I would say it's still southern states, still very, very nice people. 
um, still very big on their sports, you know, cheering for their different colleges. Arkansas doesn't even have a pro team, but they're real big on the Razorbacks and, um, you know, they play a bunch of Texas teams. So they're, you know, big on camaraderie and big on sports. Uh, two of the nicest um, states that I've been in, I think. I mean, it's just, there's something about the Southern states that are just, people are extremely friendly. And moving back to Texas after especially living in the Pacific Northwest, I've noticed a major a difference in the people here. I mean, just they're so incredibly nice. So definitely miss South. And um, I didn't notice a whole lot of differences growing up. All right. Well, then speaking of sports, what were you doing in the school ages as far as athletics? Uh, well, zero. We're playing paintball, actually, I should say. So my childhood was a little interesting because I was homeschooled because we moved around a lot. So after after we went to Bolivia, um, when we came back from living a year in Bolivia, my parents just kept homeschooling us. And I was homeschooled up until the 10th grade year where I ended up going to public high school. So I can tell you, it's really strange trying to integrate 10th grade year into a 7A high school that had, oh, I don't know, like 5,000 kids in attendance. So it was really interesting. I never did play sports, but we did play on a paintball league. So I guess that would consider it, but it was private. We didn't play any school sports, um, but played a lot of paintball, spent a lot of time in the woods, which ended up leading to me um, eventually trying to go into pararescue in the Air Force. And then this in that school age, what were you thinking about as far as career? What were you dreaming about? Well, we, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, we always had GI Joes. We always had, you know, special operations and we wanted to be Rambo. Me and all my brothers did. We would play that stuff. And, and we, we, when I was thinking about talking about my childhood, because I knew you were going to ask, because you asked almost everybody, I was like, man, some of the crazy stuff we did. We, uh, there was this creek that ran through near my grandparents' house in um, Arkansas. And this thing was chock full of water moccasins, the, these snakes, you know, venomous snakes that live in the water. We used to crawl around under these little caves and overhangings and things like that, finding these snakes because we were pretending that we were some kind of special forces swimming around in this murky, nasty water. And I look back at it now, I mean, we used to swim under boat docks at the lake where there was snakes all over the place. I mean, that's the thing about the South. They have water moccasins in pretty much every body of water. And they're very aggressive snakes. Well, we would just carry sticks with us. And if they would come at us, we would just hit them with a stick and kill them. And, you know, thinking back now, I mean, it did come in handy when I was in pararescue indoc for sure. Because we swam, we swam in some very questionable water, bodies of water. But uh, that's what we did. I mean, we were always in the wood with some of our buddies that we had um, crawling around, shooting at each other with these paintball guns, playing special operations. That was the majority of my childhood. Now, you mentioned uh, Aaron has autism. So talk to me about yes. the, the level he, he is on the spectrum. And then, you know, what is the difference in the dynamic of having an older brother with autism that maybe other people are not aware of? Uh, that, I would have to say that having a brother with autism definitely shaped me for who I am now. Because growing up, yes, I had an older brother in age, but... I was the older brother dynamic because just, you know, he's, I would say that he, I mean, he's 34 years old physically, but probably has the mind of a five-year-old and he, he communicates. He's hilarious. He is the nicest guy on the planet. I mean, seriously, I strive to be like him every single day because he is incapable of holding a grudge. 
He does not get angry. He is just content to be with whoever he's with at the time. And he just loves to be near you and just spend time with you. He's very simple in the fact that he just doesn't need a lot. It, you know, he, he likes to go fishing. He likes to talk about tractors. He likes to talk about livestock. And that's about his life. And he likes to play Farm Simulator on his Xbox game. But growing up, he, you know, that's a big reason why we were homeschooled, because my parents didn't want to put him in the special education system, especially because, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, special education systems weren't that great anyways. And we were always worried about bullying or, um, you know, something bad happening to him. And they just didn't want to risk that. So we all stayed homeschooled because of that. And looking back on it now, I think that was a wise decision for my parents because it made us very self-reliant in that we would take care of Aaron, but we also learned to take care of ourselves. And uh, while my dad was away working, my dad was away quite a bit. And, um, you know, my mom was there, but we were still running a farm and we just had all the responsibilities of a miniature adult, basically, you know, taking care of rabbits and goats and all that kind of stuff. And Aaron was right there along with us. and. You know, I didn't really, growing up with Aaron, he just did things how he did them. And they never seemed odd to me at the time. Like we just, we just thought, well, this is how he is, you know, and that's honestly how the whole world of neurodiversity should be going. It's starting to pick up momentum that way anyways, where you realize that people that are neurodiverse, whether they're on the autism spectrum or they have Down syndrome or whatever the situation is that they are just people, they just do things a different way. And so, you know, memories I have of Aaron, he would get extremely anxious. And the way he would fight his anxiety was he did what's called arm flapping, which is pretty common in a lot of people with autism, where he would walk around out in the yard and he would flap his arms upside down, or not upside down, up and down. But he would pace back and forth, back and forth. And he would do that for hours. And we just never thought anything about it. We're just, you know, where's Aaron? Oh, he's out in the yard pacing. Okay. You know, it's just what it was, but thinking back, you know, I can remember that there was a worn trail literally where he wore a trail down in the grass to dirt where he walked back and forth, back and forth. And that's just because he didn't have any stimulation for his brain. He didn't have, you know, he wasn't, he, he did things around the farm, but sometimes, honestly, it was easier to just do things for him, which I think was unfair for him looking back. Now, granted, we didn't know anything about any of this. And to preface the rest of this conversation is I am still learning everything that I don't know about this. And even this morning, I was reading up more on it. Um, there's just so much that the levels of people with any kind of IDD, intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities um, there's just layers upon layers upon layers about how they do things that are differently than what we do. And so it was always interesting just seeing how he behaved, but that has definitely helped me further on in my life through the different careers that I've done and what's eventually led to where I am right now. Yeah, it's fascinating. We don't think about that in the first responder profession, like how many people out there, <clears throat> you know, of of different intellectual capabilities. Obviously, you've got Down syndrome and autism. You've got B-shifters is another one. Uh, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually had uh, Todd Edwards on, um, and he, um, oh, my God, I think it's his, it's his son, if I'm not mistaken, is autistic. Um, and when you start looking at how we interact with them as, you know, EMT paramedics, when we interact with them as law enforcement officers, 
you start to see where some of the challenges are where we can escalate mm-hmm. for example their mood versus de-escalate you know and calm them down yes. and in some sad cases that's resulted in someone with you know mental challenges actually being shot because it, yes. you know th- there was that misunderstanding that is actually unfortunately a major fear of ours growing up with Aaron and um, we always wanted him to be a little individual individualistic and try things and so my mom used to own a cupcake bakery in downtown Rogers Arkansas and there was a barbecue cart that Aaron loved to go get barbecue and it was a huge jump for us he was ready to walk down there by himself and hand the money in, do the whole thing you know get his barbecue we were honestly afraid that if he even in that short span of whatever it was, four blocks or something, that he could run into any kind of issue where a police officer could roll up on him for whatever reason, and he just freezes. That's his defense mechanism. He will lock up and freeze, will not talk, will just sit there and stare at you. And we were always afraid that they wouldn't know. And and I support the police and just like most first responders do, 100% support the police and there's most of them are good. But there are ones out there that have short fuses and we could get into the talk about PTSD and everything like that. It's just this vicious, vicious cycle about how poorly police officers are treated on the street. But we were always afraid that if something came down to that, Aaron would not follow orders. And even if they threw him on the ground, he, he's kind of a fragile build. I mean, it wouldn't take much. You know, he's got he's already has brain damage. You know, at birth, he had lack of oxygen. Um, they had to revive him, all this kind of stuff. And it wouldn't take much of a TBI of some sort being thrown on the ground to probably kill him. And that's a huge worry for a lot of parents and family with members of ID, who have IDD is that interacting in public, that's when it gets serious and when it gets really scary. And so it's interesting that you, you bring that up because it is a big worry. Yeah, I mean, there's so many areas that we are not educated on and again we're you know jack of all trades master of none and there's so many skills in that skill set we already have to master but sadly and i hate that word soft skills it's such a a patronizing term but you know that the the kindness and compassion element sometimes gets lost amongst the technical you know knowledge that we need but taking a step back and looking at some of the different you know, people that we run on, whether it's just simply putting a female paramedic with a with a female patient that maybe has been abused or whether it's, you know, finding that person that speaks the language that your patient does. I mean, all these little things are the, the human side, but they can make such a difference. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And I, I look back and I think about a, a very specific call that I went on one time. We got called for a combative uh, patient in the back of a police car. You know, they had, they had already handcuffed her and put her in the back of a police car. When we got there, she was smashing her head against the window and there was blood everywhere. She had split her forehead open and she was smashing her head. Well, the way she, when I opened the back door to assess her, the, the cops that were there were very aggressive and agitated at her already because she had already been combative. As soon as I started talking to her, I figured out real quick that she was somewhere on the autism spectrum. You know, she was not thinking the way that we were thinking and she wasn't intentionally acting out. It's just that her world had just been completely disrupted. She was a suicidal patient to begin with. And one of the biggest irritations for me is that people who are on this, who are already suicidal and then get treated like that, like we did not make their, their situation any better, you know, and, and now she's acting out and now she needs serious mental help. 
but you know, they just kind of pitched her in the back seat. And from there it was like, well, we don't know what to do with it. We're going to take her to jail. And so we kind of had to calm the whole situation down there. And fortunately the crew that I was with, I had a very, very patient engine crew that was with me with a really good paramedic on there. We all kind of realized the situation. We're able to calm the whole thing down and get her patched up and get her to where she needed to be. But the, the amount of people that the police officers have to deal with constantly that are trying to fight them or be combative, uh, most of the time it's drug related, but we go to, oh, they must be on drugs or we go to, they must be drinking way quicker than we think, oh, maybe they actually are special needs somehow, or, hey, maybe they are having a diabetic emergency. I think as the medics, we think that first, maybe, hopefully, but when you're in a busy a busy house and you're constantly running on drug overdoses, you tend to want to immediately jump to, they must be on drugs. And so I think it's something that we could definitely educate the medics and the fire service and the police officers about is that maybe we should think about it differently. Like, Hey, let's approach it from that. They might be having some kind of mental issue opposed to where they're trying to hurt you. Now, I know the police officers would probably argue opposite and I get it. I get that. That's their argument because in their point of view, well, someone may pull out a gun in the time that you're trying to figure out what's going on with them and they might shoot the police officer. So it's a tough, it's definitely a tough debate. Um, I'm just trying to champion for patience and kindness and, you know, let's actually try to take care of our patients and not injure them. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do is do no harm. And so it's just this constant round and around cycle, which there's no easy answer for. Yeah. I always found it maddening when, medics or yeah, slash firefighters would get you know like puff their chest at a hypoglycemic or a postictal patient and like dude they literally don't know what they're doing at the moment just yeah. step back go go sit in the rear go do something else and you know we'll give them some sugar and i guarantee you they'll probably be nice as pie again and sure as shit you know give them some <laughs> some medication and a couple of minutes to kind of come around and yeah, they, they, their, their body, their mind has been hijacked, basically. So yes. that's very different from the person that spits at you and, you know, you have to tie down and give a little medic cocktail and make him go sleepy sleep. Mm-hmm. Yep, very much so. All right. Well, then let's start your kind of career journey because I know there's there's multiple chapters that I want to hit. So firstly, the journey into um, the well, – actually, before we get to the military, talk about what took you to the, the slopes first as a ski bum and then we'll kind of go from there to the Air Force. Okay. Yeah. So after I graduated high school, I was ready to go on some big adventures. So I had a buddy of mine and we did all the crazy high school kid stuff. You know, we, um, we got into rappelling. So we would climb every water tower or every bridge or every phone tower that we could find in our town. And we would rappel off of it. And we did this at night. So I got this big adventurous um, vibe that I really wanted to go fulfill. And I wanted to go adventure and travel and see the world. I had never seen the world. Uh, when I was in high school, I got voted most likely to marry an Aztec princess. And that's what they put in my in my yearbook, because at school, I was constantly bringing in photos and talking about wanting to travel. I really wanted to go see the world. You know, I'd have pictures of Tikal in Guatemala or, uh, you know, like Sumic Champagne or something like that. And there's all these places that I wanted to go see. And so when I graduated, I was like, well, now's the time that I'm going to do that. At this time, Aaron had moved down to Texas to live with my grandparents full time because after the divorce, my mom was kind of struggling to make ends meet. 
we were trying to find our way also. And so we went to public school and my family was kind of divided at that point. It's just my brother's, his autism was better suited with my grandparents who were kind and patient and they lived on a farm and they themselves were very rigid with the schedule. So he really liked it there and it worked out well. Um, so when I graduated high school, I said, well, I've got a chance now. Aaron's living with my grandparents. He's happy down there. Um, you know, my other family, they can fend for themselves. They're all capable adults. So I just decided to go travel. So I ended up going to Colorado, mind you, not knowing how to snowboard or ski and got a job as a lift operator at Arapahoe Basin. Lied on my resume or my application, told him I was an expert snowboarder, and then proceeded to learn for the first week how to snowboard enough to get by and not stand out too bad. So did that whole deal. Uh, it eventually moved over to Keystone, where I worked as a mountain safety technician. Uh, essentially, I was just a pain in the rear end where I skied around or snowboarded around telling people to slow down and fixing signs. And we weren't very well liked because we were like the junior varsity of actual ski patrol. But I really enjoyed being on the mountain, loved being in the snow. And when summer came, I needed a new job. So I applied to be a horse wrangler at Sea Lazy U Guest Ranch and got hired for whatever reason, probably because I lied on my application about being a <laughs> professional horse. <laughs> I'm seeing a trend here. <laughs> yeah. Then I uh, went to skydiving school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so they hired me and quickly learned. It's, it's really funny at this point because now I talked to the manager at the time. I'm still buddies with him. And he's like, oh, yeah, it was real evident. You didn't know what you were doing real quick. He's like, but I like the gumption and they taught me. So they ended up teaching me the natural horsemanship way of doing things. And in my mind, I actually didn't know how to ride horses because when I grew up, we had a couple of horses, but we never rode. I mean, I sat on the horse, but never actually truly rode. And I didn't know anything about horsemanship. So the first couple of weeks of Wrangler training, they taught me everything. And uh, this ranch, I happened to win the lottery by getting hired at this ranch because it specifically was being run um, by Lee Forrester, who had traveled around with Buck Brandeman for a long period of time. And so it's interesting that you've had Buck on your podcast because my life intertwined with Buck in that he, I met Buck at that ranch, but he goes to that ranch to teach clinics all the time. And the horsemanship that Leaf taught there was all Buck Brandeman style horsemanship. So I didn't only learn horsemanship, I learned good horsemanship, like top of the line, best natural horsemanship. And I went from not knowing anything to being a fairly proficient hand pretty quick because it was an intensive program. Now, I wouldn't say that I'm a proficient hand and being a cowboy all the way around, but for what we needed to do, I felt like I learned a lot. And I felt like I was a good wrangler and was able to keep people safe and guide horseback rides and entertain guests. And I absolutely love that place. Ended up staying on another season, worked a winter season there. And then somewhere in the winter season, when I was knee deep in a frozen pond, trying to chop, chop it with an ax to, to break it up for the horses, I said, I am tired of this. So I went into my, my cabin and I got on the internet and I bought a ticket to Costa Rica, one-way ticket to Costa Rica, which ended up leading me down there. And I backpacked Central America for six months, surfing and drinking and partying my way through Costa Rica. Uh, I think most, most of the time my family didn't even know where I was or what I was doing. I think I probably ghosted them for like two months without actually telling them where I was, but they eventually got used to that 
type of living that I did. But uh, yeah, so had a blast in Central America, and that's kind of what led me up to going into the Air Force. So back to Buck just for a second. That was such an incredible story. So actually, it was Josh Brolin that told me one of the closing questions is it a film or a documentary, and that was the film Buck that he told me to watch. I watched it and then was able to drive up to Georgia. Buck was putting on a clinic, got to watch that, sit with him, and we did half the interview there. And then I'd barely scraped the surface. I'm like, please, is there any way we can do the rest over the internet? He's like, yeah, it's fine. So I think it was about a month. We finally found another day and sat down. But you want an insight into kindness and compassion toward animals and how that creates a bond and makes you a better rider and the healing element of animals when you as a human being have trauma. Um, such an amazing story. And he and his brother had parallel lives with you know the childhood they endured. But Buck found his way through horsemanship to this kind of compassion element. And he said his brother kind of, you know, kept it all in and, and, and remained a very angry, kind of bitter man. So in not a, not, not a negative way, just he was never able to kind of find that healing outlet. So, yeah, I mean, if for people listening, if you have a chance, listen to the Buck Brannerman episode. It was incredible. A hundred percent. And that's what ended up leading me to listening to your podcast anyways, because Steve Sagaguchi, when I was eating dinner with him, he told me, he's like, hey, he's like, you should check out Behind the Shield. And there's this guy named, uh, what was it? But he's going, to, I was like, Buck? And he said, yeah, Buck. And I said, Buck Brandeman? I was like, Buck Brandeman was on there? And so I ended up listening to it and just kind of the weird intertwining of it. And then once we talked, um, yeah, the horse world is a very powerful world. And I have seen multiple of Buck's clinics and him change lives. I mean, the guy really is, he's almost like a, a psychologist on horseback more. So he's training people, the horse stuff he's been doing for, you know, years and years and years. And um, that he has down really well, but something that he has down even better, I think is working with the people to work with their horses because more times than not, the problem horse is actually the problem person. And the work that he's done with humans is incredible. And he's really has changed lives. And that was a big motivating factor for me to eventually get into the world of working with people uh, with special needs and working with horses at the same time, which we'll get into that in a little bit. Absolutely. All right. Well, then walk me through the Air Force. I know you had you know, quite an interesting special operations um, quest. So let's talk about that. <laughs> well, to preface it, first of all, I never actually made it into special operations because I apparently have a genetic weakness where I break my leg a lot. But um, yeah, so I was sitting on the beach in Mexico. I was in Islu Mujeres. And this was at the end of my six months backpacking. And I remember vividly, I was sitting in a hammock and it was hot and it was white sand beaches. And I was drinking a margarita and I was watching these girls swim topless in the water. And I remember thinking- I am so sorry that you went through that. It was awful. Let me tell you, it was so terrible. But the weirdest thing was, is that I felt hollow. I was like, I, I had been, this, this had been my life for six months and- I got this wave of selfishness of this hollow feeling in me that I needed to be doing something more. I started thinking about my brother. I started thinking about just everything. I was like, man, I'm, I'm made for something more than this. I need to go do something different. And so I went back to the hostel and I just started Googling all kinds of things about the military. Well, ironically that night we watched the guardian um, in, in the hostel. And so Kevin Costner and, uh, uh, 
Ashton Kutcher, you know, the rescue swimming thing, man, I was hooked. I was like, that's what I want to do. So I'm great at swimming. I, I want to do that. And so I flew back to the United States and contacted a Coast Guard recruiter. Well, being in Rogers, Arkansas, there's no Coast Guard recruiters anywhere near. The closest was, I think, Little Rock, Arkansas, which is four hours away. And I called them up, set up a meeting. I said, hey, I'm interested. I want to join as a rescue swimmer. They said, okay. So they set a meeting. I drove two hours. They're going to meet me halfway. They stood me up and I was furious. I, right then I was furious. And, um, you know, I used to have a real quick temper and it's something I've always worked on, but basically if something didn't go my way, I would throw a tantrum and I'm like, Nope, not doing this. So I was just going to give up on that whole ordeal and ended up talking to, Oh, uh, backtrack a little bit. I'd climbed a volcano in Guatemala with a PJ. And to this day, I don't remember who he was, but he was a pararescueman on leave, just doing, just traveling, backpacking. We climbed this Guatemala volcano together. And he's like, dude, he's like, you're a pretty good climber. He's like, you should look into going pararescue. Well, I didn't know anything about it. So after the rescue swimmer thing didn't work out, I looked into the Air Force pararescue. I was like, oh, this might be even better. You know, it's like, okay, I'm not always in the water. I actually get to go shoot people and do stuff like that. So um, went to the Air Force recruiter and long story short, went through the whole thing, passed my tests and went off to boot camp with a guaranteed spot in pararescue to start NDOC. Uh, did NDOC for the first, I think I made it four weeks the first time around. Ended up, uh, I had stress fractures from boot camp running in the stupid boots that they gave us. Plus, I remind you, I hadn't been athletic at all. Like literally zero training to go into special operations. I don't know how I even got as far as I did because I didn't do CrossFit. I didn't work out. I didn't play sports. I was just a backpacking bum that surfed a little bit and drank a lot and somehow made it through boot camp. No problem, except for the stress fractures. I thought, oh, it'd be okay. Or sorry, it's shin splints. And then, which turned into stress fractures. But I pretty much had the stress fractures the first week of NDOC and made it to week four. And eventually the, it broke. Like I got a pretty severe break in my tibia and they, um, <laughs> they washed me back. So they gave me, I think a whole three weeks to recover from that, which, you know, as everybody knows, three weeks is a great amount of time to recover from broken bones. And then I got put in another class and I think I made it six weeks on that one, made it right up to extended training day, which is their hell night basically. Um, but ended up breaking my leg again and got washed out. So the second time around, they they didn't give me the option to to do it again. They said, "Look, man, you know the, you're going to be here forever trying to recover." Basically, they didn't have the time for me. And they said, um, "If you want to stay special operations, then we have this spot for you in TAC P, Tactical Air Control Party." I said, "I'll take it." So this time they gave me a month to recover, which was better than three weeks. And I ended up passing the initial selection course for TACP and they shipped me off to Florida where I promptly broke my leg for the third time there. So I didn't even make it into their upgrade training. It was like pre pre training, training, just conditioning. And I ended up, my leg just was, was effed at that point. So they put me in a, I don't even know what they called it now, like student out of training status, SOT. And I became a glorified janitor for the special operations command at Hurlburt Field, Florida, where I was mopping floors and got to be around a lot of cool guys. But I wasn't a cool guy. I was a janitor. And at this time, it was a real kick because they had filmed um, 
Surviving the Cut, which is the, the Discovery Channel pararescue show. They filmed my class. And this came out when I was a student out of training, when I was a janitor. But man, I was really excited to watch it. And I told everybody about it. Well, we had a big watch party. And I'm in that show maybe a second, like literally one second of carrying some guy on my back. But but they just fast forward through the entire first part of it and uh, showed the guys that actually made it and were hardcore and <laughs> they made it through. But I was really bummed about that deal. Uh, so at this point, they said, well, we need to reclass you into something because we own you for six years. So you could either be a forklift driver or you could be a mental health technician. And I said, well, both of those sound very promising career fields afterwards. Not. So they, uh, I picked mental health technician because it was in the hospital and I was already kind of geared towards medical with PJs. So they shipped me off to San Antonio, did my mental health training, and I was actually good at it. But the crazy thing was, is I was faking it the whole time. I, I honestly didn't care. I had this chip on my shoulder. I was now, I mean, shoot, at this point, I'd already been in the Air Force for two and a half years, and they're sending me back to another tech school. So now I've got some rank. Now I don't want to be with all these, you know, in my mind, I have rank. I mean, really, it was just an E3 with some seniority over the, the newbies that were coming in. But I did mental health technician and they sent me off to Germany where I got to work in an outpatient clinic, but also got to work in an inpatient clinic in Launchstuhl, which was where the pretty severe cases would go, the psychiatric cases, because that is the catch-all for all the members that would come back from overseas that were in, in actual war, you know, down in the sandbox. And I got to see what truly debilitating mental health issues looked like working in the inpatient psychiatric ward with some of these guys who truly thought they were still in combat would be hiding behind their beds or screaming out at night or throwing things. We had dangerous patients where we couldn't even walk into the room alone. You had to have multiple people in there. They had to sedate them. It was a truly sad ordeal, but because of my experience there, I ended up getting to do dangerous patient escorts, which was a uh, I really enjoyed that. It was a challenging job, but when they had to send patients back uh, to the United States for treatment, they'd have to send an escort with them to make sure that they didn't hurt themselves or hurt others. And so I ended up traveling a lot. I got to fly back and forth quite a bit doing escorts, really enjoyed that. Um, sometimes it was, you know, like some a suicidal teenager of a deployed member and they just needed to be escorted back. And then sometimes it was OGA, you know, other governmental agency type operatives who had been over there in the sandbox for way too long and lost their minds somehow, you know, experienced something incredibly traumatic or just repetitive traumatic over and over and over. And so I'd have to escort these guys back. And so got to hear quite a bit of quite a few different stories from people that I was escorting. And, uh, it really opened up my eyes to the entire mental health community, which I'd never really been exposed to all that much about empathy. And, you know, it's like, wow, it's, you know, up until this point, I thought PTSD was just, okay, you got a weak mind, you, you know, inability to cope and just don't think about it. You know, all the typical stereotypical stuff that you hear um, until fast forward, I get to experience my own further in the story, but uh, up until that point, I was really enjoying being a mental health technician and um, had a lot of fun doing it. So obviously you're seeing quite extreme cases. Um, when you know, all these conversations I've had, you know, there are things that 
people do that work very well. And there are many, many things that people experience when they're going through crisis that actually make it worse. Some result in them taking their lives, some result in, you know, addiction or whatever it is. Through your eyes with some of these extreme extreme cases, were there any where you saw, wow, this particular thing worked well with this individual? And then conversely, were there any where you witnessed, oh my God, that, that just made it 10 times worse? Well, you'll like this answer because this is your world, but fitness, fitness and health was probably the number one component that I could say that helped people cope. And I think that one, that one uh, coping mechanism could be contributed to saving thousands of lives in the military community, because some of these guys that are over there are just repetitive trauma after trauma after trauma. They have the brotherhood where they have camaraderie. And a lot of that camaraderie is based around fitness. And the harder you train your body, the better it adapts to stress. And so this could be taken down to, I've known women that were CrossFitters. And then when they give birth to a child, their pregnancy was pretty easy. The birth was easy. And it's because their body is used to stress and repetitive trauma over and over and over to where their body can cope with that. And so that was a very healthy mechanism that a lot of these folks used in the military to cope. The unhealthy coping strategies were the alcohol, drugs, you know, uh, endless nights of video games without sleeping. All There was, I mean, just energy drinks by four or five a day at night, not sleeping there also. Um, you know, I know you're big on talking about the schedule for the fire department and I a hundred percent believe or agree with you on that situation because sleep deprivation is the biggest contributing factor to mental health problems. And when you start really following the rabbit hole with that kind of stuff, if you don't have sleep and your body can't recharge and your mind can't process through a lot of that stuff that it processes through while you're asleep, you have all the other trickling effects. And so then you get the sleep apnea that sets in and then you get uh, the obesity that sets in and just all the physical problems that come with it. And life is hard, but life is way harder when you're obese. And it's a, it's a crucial factor that if you could train yourself to handle these situations as they come up, you know, David Goggins talks about all this. He says, you know, life is an ultra marathon. It, you got, if you train for it, then when the stuff comes down the pike, it doesn't surprise you and you're used to adjusting and, and adjusting fire and handling it. But if you never expose yourself to discomfort, when you do have discomfort in your life, because everybody has discomfort in their life, people, you know, will die. You know, you will, ex, you will experience traumatic things in your life. It's just a thing that happens to humans. You're not ready to handle that. And when people use unhealthy coping mechanisms, it's, it's just a downward spiral. And we saw it over and over and over where, you know, someone would get popped for a DUI on base, which would end up resulting in suicidal ideations. You're like, well, how did you get there? I mean, a DUI is not that big of a deal. You're going to make it. It's just that they got into the spiral where, okay, they got a DUI, but all the stuff that was going on in their life before they were already playing video games, nonstop on base. They weren't sleeping. Their diets weren't there. They weren't working out. It just spiraled into the point to where now they wanted to kill themselves because they couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel when it could have been fairly prevented if they would have been healthy individuals to begin with. Well, there's such an irony with DUI as well. There's so much shame 
so much you know stigma attached to it, and rightly so. You know, you you are literally endangering people on the road. However, most of the people that are casting that shame, if they look in the mirror, know damn well there are times in their lives where they could have easily been pulled over and got a DUI as well. So it's that real, so. like you know, <laughs> just hypocrisy is what it is. Um, and so yeah, I agree with you completely. And it, and it's you know when you have your license revoked, then that's the loss of independence. So absolutely, there's all those compounding elements. You take someone who's already in crisis, you add that into the mix, which is obviously you know usually at the tail end of some sort of mental health breakdown anyway, that you're drinking that much and driving. Um, that, yeah, I mean, that can easily be one of the last things that happens before someone decides to stick a gun in their mouth. Very much so. It is definitely a trigger event for a lot of people that they think, well, this is rock bottom. Well, <laughs> you can get a lot lower than that most of the time. But yeah, when you're when you're ready to kill yourself, that's definitely rock bottom. And um, fortunately... You know, sometimes it takes something like a DUI to kind of raise the red flag. And the irony of that is that, yeah, you may have done something stupid, but it raised the red flag for you to get the help that you needed. And we encountered that quite a bit in the mental health clinic. It's like, oh, we didn't know, you know, how would we know this person even existed? The military is huge, but we didn't know you were going through this kind of problems in your life that you needed this level of help. And so um, we did, I feel like, uh, catch it for lack of a better term, catch people that might have gone through with hurting themselves or hurting others. I mean, I dealt with homicidal patients also who had a plan to kill people on base. And I don't think the mental health providers in military bases get enough credit for the amount of ca- catastrophic events that they help avoid because they catch people all the time that truly have homicidal tendencies that either want to kill their wife or kill themselves or, or, or not suicidal, but, you know, kill other people on base and uh, kill the cheating husband or whatever. Um, a lot of them end up coming through the mental health office because they did something like a DUI or they snapped at somebody at work and yelled at them and they got referred there. In the military, you can get referred by a first sergeant pretty quick and you have no choice but go to mental health because or it's either that or prison. So you take mental health. But we saw quite a few people go through that type of stuff. And it really opened my eyes to the amount of mental health crises that there are in the world. And that was just military. We haven't even started talking about fire department yet. So I have a loved one who was going through crisis and then got a DUI and that ended up being the best thing that ever happened. So after that, they were forced to go to counseling, you know, because of the actual event itself. But that ultimately helped process grief that was really the underlying element of the drinking in the first place. So and then it's interesting as well when you say about the homicide. I've had guests on the show that have admitted to being ready to shoot up an office, you know, government office or uh, I forget who the other one was. But yeah, and then when you look at the breakdown in the mind, when you add childhood trauma, sleep deprivation, organizational stress, I mean, all these in TBI, all these elements that can compound, there's a complete disassociation from reality. As everyone knows, you know, the, the human being is designed to survive, designed to reproduce, designed to protect their offspring. Um, and so it goes against everything that makes sense to us, as does homicide. But once you have that, that kind of disconnect where your life doesn't matter anymore, well, then, sadly, that's why you get all these murder-suicides because now 
you have this crazy belief that, oh, if I do this and this, then we're all going to go to heaven and we're going to live happily ever after. It makes zero sense. Same way as you walk into an elementary school and shoot a bunch of kids. You can't make sense of that because it doesn't make no. any fucking sense. It's not rational at all. No. And pe- people try to rationalize irrational behaviors by people that have mental health issues. Well, it it's hard for us to fathom because most people are rational. It's like, well, how does this... I don't understand this. Well, we won't understand it because if you understood it, that means you're in the same boat as the person who decides to shoot up schools. You know, there's just, you can't rationalize with irrational people and you can't rationalize their irrational thoughts either. So definitely it's a, it's a tough spot. Absolutely. Well, it's a very unique perspective to have in the military. So what made you decide to transition out um, and then what was that transition out like for you? For a lot of people, obviously, the identity is usually connected. Say, for example, you had made it through PJ training and you've been with that unit. There would be a really ingrained uh, tribal element, a sense of identity. But you obviously you know, found yourself under different um, job titles, ultimately. So, you know, yeah, what, what made you pull the trigger? And then what was, what was that transition out for you? That's a good segue because... Yes. Yeah, so I, I was really struggling myself about not making it through pararescue because I had this, this dying need to find a, a meaning or a purpose in my life that showed me that I was man enough. I could do, I could do special operations, you know, and I didn't get that because my body didn't stand up. You know, I'm, I am proud to this day that I did not ring the bell and did not quit. And I'm so glad I did it because I can't imagine the mindset that I would have been in the rest of my life if I would have rang the bell and quit. Because for me, I gave it hell. I, I did. I mean, like I said, I went weeks on a broken leg and I was, I was pounding 1600 milligrams of ibuprofen a day, just trying to kill the pain. Um, I was excited when we got to the pool because in the pool, my leg didn't hurt, you know, and I could crush water confidence I could do the drown proofing. I could do all that crazy stuff in the water because I was just thankful to be in the water. But when we got on land and I was carrying hundred pound rucksacks, my leg was just screaming. And I honestly, every day I was expecting my leg to just snap out from underneath me because it hurt that bad. And so moving forward through my career, it's like, yeah, I was good at mental health, but that's not what I wanted to do with my life. I, I wanted to be a badass. I really truly wanted to be a part of a, of an elite team of guys. I was really missing a brotherhood. I really wanted the connection because my whole life, you know, I'd seen all these movies. I'm like, yeah, the brotherhood is really what I wanted. I, I really want my brothers and I, we were close growing up, but we didn't have that tight knit. We were very different. My youngest brother was into Legos and making little movies with his camera. And he was a very much a loner. My other younger brother was into like graffiti and (laughs) things like that, you know, me. And then Aaron did what Aaron did. And so I didn't have that close knit getting to hang out with your brothers, do cool things. You know, we played in the woods and things like that, but um, especially in high school, we did not hang out. So I was truly craving the brotherhood and I had joined. uh, So I ended up getting sent to Dias Air Force Base in Texas. And when I was there, I found this little volunteer fire department, Potosi outside of Abilene. And I saw that they were looking for volunteers. So I called them up and they're like, yeah, come on up. We can use volunteers. And I showed up and this was like a good old boy fire department. I mean, it was blue jeans, cowboy boots, pickup trucks, 
they had uh, some old fire engine, like a type one fire engine. And then they had a myriad of different military trucks that have been converted, like five ton deuce and a half and things like that, that have been converted into to different water tenders and things. But this was my first experience in the fire service. And I thought, man, this is cool. Like, I like this. I made friends real quick. And essentially, anytime I wasn't on base, I now hung out at the fire department, just waiting for calls. And we carried around our pagers and we would literally be out back shooting guns. The pager would go off and we would all just randomly jump in different vehicles with no rhyme or reason, barely any training. And off we would go code three to some, you know, like lift assist, non-injury lift assist. We'd always scream it over there like some big convoy, but I loved it. But the, uh, the irony is that I got to fight a lot of fire. I hadn't realized that the rest of the fire world didn't fight as much fire as I thought we did at Potosi because that specific area, meth houses. So we were going on fires a lot. We, we had different, we had some days we would have three or four brush fires in a day and a house fire. And I just thought this was normal. And we were just running and gunning, um, you know, underfunded. We were all volunteer there. It is a miracle. None of us died because looking back now, knowing what I know, I'm like, my, and it, I mean, getting up on a roof to cut with no training whatsoever. We never trained on roof cuts and just cutting some random hole in some random part of the roof. It's a miracle. We didn't die. Uh, but you know, my first fire was pretty wild because, uh, the very first structure fire I ever had at Potosi, we got reports of a victim inside in a wheelchair. And when we showed up, the, the smoke was rolling out the window, out the front door. And it was me and the engineer who had a flu at the time. And he said, I can't breathe, so I can't go in with you. And he sent me water and he was standing out in the front yard and I masked up and just randomly another volunteer firefighter showed up in his personal car and had his gear. He masked up and we went inside and did a full search. But I had had, um, we had been eating at IHOP before that. And so I was completely full of like an omelet and pancakes. And I remember going in there and having to throw up and I knocked out a window, you know, talking about flow paths here. I just made a giant one. I knocked out a window, pulled my mask off and I threw up out of the window (laughs) and put my mask back on and we kept searching. Fortunately, the guy had gotten out uh, the neighbors had drug him out and he was behind the house. We never knew he was back there. Didn't find anybody, but it was a arson fire. They had, they had a, a, a child. He was a 12 year old with behavioral problems they locked him in his room because they didn't know what to do with him because he's throwing a tantrum and he set the room on fire. Fortunately, he got out, but um, yeah, everybody got out, but it was crazy. That was my first house fire. And so I was just thinking all this was normal and my time in the air force was coming up. And so I asked to cross train into the air force fire service and they wouldn't let me because here's military logic for you. My, my career field as mental health technician was critically staffed. They, they would not let anybody cross train. I said, well, I'm my time in the military is coming up. And I said, I'm not going to reenlist if you won't let me in train for firefighting. They said, we can't because your career field's critically staffed. I said, you're going to lose me anyways. Well, they didn't care. So I got out. And um, that's when I ended up using my post 9-11 GI bill to go to Texas A&M fire Academy down there, which Man, it, talking about going from the volunteer fire department to what was supposed to be, I mean, the training at Teeks, I don't know if you've ever done, it, done anything in Disaster City down there, but it's hardcore. I mean, they call it the Harvard of Fire Academies for a reason because it was hit the ground running. I started learning real quick how much I didn't know about actual firefighting. 
course, I was one of the only few there that had been in fires, but it didn't matter because we were doing everything wrong. So um, did that and then uh, moved up to Oregon. That's the next chapter. So I've heard of Teague's. Um, when I went to go and see Buck, I went and visited and, I, and it drives me crazy because I've been trying to remember the name of it. But there is a place in Georgia that is a disaster city as well. And I actually got to, to take a tour with a Marine that runs it at the time. Um, but incredible, absolutely amazing. I mean, there was huge collapse areas. There was a town that they could flood to kind of simulate Katrina, that kind of thing. There was a subway. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. And they were telling me that they actually get cadavers, that real human beings, and they use wow. them for, for some of the, you know, the advanced training that they have. That's crazy. That wouldn't surprise me if Teeks um, also did that. But, you know, we were just there for Fire Academy. But I know they do all kinds of upgrade training for USAR. You know, they have Texas Task Force One is based out of there. And those guys were at 9-11 and Katrina. They're pretty hardcore dudes. So uh, it was a great experience. I absolutely loved it. So when I graduated, I had all of my certifications, my pro board certs and everything. So I could more or less write my ticket to where I wanted to go. And at the time I was dating this nurse who got a job up in Portland, Oregon. So she moved up there. So I moved with her. And then, yeah, that's where we ended up after that. So was the park ranger stuff before you actually got on? No park ranger. Yeah. Well, park ranger is when I got to, uh, when I got to Oregon. So when we moved there, I needed to get a job and I was looking for fire department jobs. No one was hiring at the time. So I actually ended up becoming a ski patroller first. So this, this place called ski bowl on Mount hood, they were hiring for patrollers. I showed up, told him my experience. And I was honest with the guy. This is the one time I did not lie on an application because I said, I said, look, man, I said, I've never been a patroller. I said, I was a lift operator. I was a mountain safety. I said, my snowboarding skills are okay, but I haven't done it in years. Um, you know, at this point, I don't think I'd snowboarded in seven years or something. And he's like, that's okay. We'll get you up there and see what you got. So did it. I fell off the lift as soon as I got off the lift. Like I was, I think I was in blue jeans at the time. I mean, it was an absolute, you know, it was a clown show, but he ended up letting me give me the shot and uh, I became a ski patroller, passed the test, eventually got my red jacket and loved working on the ski hill. I mean, it was, we were short staffed there. It was a busy ski hill and it's, they call it steeper, cheaper, deeper. It's, um, it's a steep, steep hill and it's underfunded and it's dangerous. And I think while I was there, I mean, multiple people died. We had, horrendous traumas. I mean, mountain rescues, avalanche stuff. It was wild. It was, you know, just running and gunning and figuring it out. And I eventually worked my way up to one of the team leads there and loved it. And then when summer came around, I was like, man, I want something like ski patrol except for summer. And so that's when I applied to become a park ranger with the forest service. And I got stationed at Multnomah Falls, which is outside of Portland, which on average gets 50,000 visitors a day on a weekend during the peak summer months. And so forest service being the forest service put three people out there and one of them with any kind of medical training. So at this time I had already gotten my EMT license and, you know, I'd been doing the ski patrol thing and there's a whole list of job responsibilities we were supposed to do, you know, like doing interp stuff where we were supposed to teach people about animals and plants and all this stuff. And we were supposed to enforce traffic. Nope. None of that mattered because with 50,000 people a day, it was nonstop trail rescues. I was probably, 
I think I was on par with the best shape of my life. Like I was in pararescue training because I was doing nothing but hiking trails and carrying people down constantly. Um, it's so close to Portland, Oregon that people treat it like it's a playground, you know, like it's a theme park and they don't think it's dangerous, but I mean, my first day there, we ended up having to go up and do an investigation on a death scene because this woman fell off the side of a trail trying to catch her kid. Her kid was running. She tried to catch the kid. She fell off and she died. And that was my first day there is going up and taking pictures of the scene for the investigation. And that was just a omen for the, for the rest of my time there because man, it's just the rescues were constant nonstop. And up there, I mean, yeah, we would occasionally have a heart attack or something like that, but it was mostly trauma deaths or massive trauma where people would fall off waterfalls and cliffs and fall down trails. And um, it was brutal. And it got to a point to where I just would, if I went up and it was a broken ankle, I didn't even wait for crews because we were so, so thin on search and rescue crews. I would carry them down piggyback. I just load them up and say, sorry. And I'd split their foot and I said, this is the quickest way down. Then I would take them down and pass them off to the ambulance and I'd go back up and get somebody else. There was always, always people to go save. So I got a ton of experience with trauma and search and rescue and wilderness medicine during that time. Um, also some pretty traumatic things for my brain to witness, you know, I mean, um, when people fall off waterfalls, it's never pretty. I mean, as you know, you've dealt with people that have fallen off things or jumped off things that just, you know, it obliterates them. And so there was, there were people who would have to sit with them for hours, just waiting for crews to come up, just sitting with a body of some kind, you know, just destroyed or obliterated. Um, one night I had to sit and basically babysit a body of someone who fell because we didn't want the bears to get to it you know, or the, or the coyotes or anything. So we were just waiting for the ME to come up and the ME couldn't get there until later. And so, and then the ME had to hike up there too. the medical examiner for people who don't know what the ME is. And um, so a lot of that, I think that's when it really started bothering me a little bit. Some of those really kind of stuck with me. I had some nightmares from it. And that's when I can truly remember starting to get irritable. That's, that was kind of the first case at this point. I didn't, I didn't really realize it, but uh, my girlfriend at the time, she sure realized it. Something was happening. And I started becoming self-destructive. I started eating a bunch, you know, and um, eventually I got to the point to where I was clinically obese. I was, I was, uh, what was it? Almost 250 pounds at 41% body fat. I mean, I was, the doctor told me I was obese. And up until that point, I'd been a fairly fit guy. And so I was like, well, what's going on? I'm just eating, you know, just constantly eating, eating my emotions. Taco Bell was kind of it for me. I was just constantly eating and, um, you know, losing my fitness, which is really detrimental. And so uh, I was not becoming a very good, effective ranger. And I was like, well, I need to do something. Well, at this point, my application had gotten picked up by Clackamas Fire and they were interested. And so I started going through the interview process and I said, man, I need to get, I need to bust it down and I need to get into shape. And so I started working pretty hard to get down to where I needed to be. Uh, ended up losing close to 50 pounds to get down to it. Um, when I finally went into fire academy, I was nowhere near the shape I needed to be in to preface that. And the irony is that Steve, it was, uh, he was my first cadre for, for the fire academy. And the way Steve does things is he runs it like a top-notch fire academy with fitness as the number one, um, you know, 
top tier thing to focus on, man, they ran me ragged. I, I honestly could barely keep up, but I was able to keep up and I passed the Academy and I lost a lot of weight in the Academy. But I remember Steve telling me at one point, he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, so, you know, you're in, you're in less shape than some of the other guys, but you're doing okay. And, uh, you know, it just kind of kicked me in the gut, but I realized the importance of, I needed to really get in shape for this stuff. So I just kept working out, working out and getting healthier and got picked up for Clagmas Fire. Then I felt like I was selected for a pro team. So that starts the Clagmas Fire journey. So that is such a great illustration of something that I've been talking a lot about recently. And again, these are so many things I talk about now. I was completely ignorant to six, seven years ago, you know. So um, one of the things is we, there is no discussion really in the fire service about what happened to us before we became a firefighter. When we talk about mental health, it's like, oh, you know, let's say, for example, some of the calls that you've seen, say that was in your fire career. Well, you know, he, Jake struggles because of the waterfall incident or, you know, the ski patrol incident. Um, but, you know, that that in this case is prior to you entering the fire service, the career fire service. So that understanding that some of us, it might be through, you know, emergency jobs that we've done prior. It might be military service or it might be something as simple as childhood trauma, which is so, so prevalent in our profession. We're drawn to be the protector. We're drawn to careers that excite us so much that we are distracted from the dark things in our mind, you know. So, you know, that is such a powerful kind of lead up to where we are now. So, Walk me through then, you started experiencing some issues, you you were eating, you were able to kind of reverse that. Kudos to Steve for keeping the bar high in his uh, academy. Um, so walk me through your your career there, you know, the, the highs and the lows, and then and then we'll kind of transition out. Okay, yeah, it's a, it's a great point that you talk about the trauma that um, we experienced before the fire service, because, you know, up to this point, I've had almost 10 years of different kinds of trauma like that. And so one thing we didn't talk about in the mental health career field was the investigations that I was a part of with like child sexual maltreatment and sexual assault with kids and just constantly dealing with that. I, I think a lot of the PTSD stuff also came from that. And it just weighs on you just hearing this stuff, seeing the pictures, dealing with these investigations. It really, really weighs on you. And so it was just building and building and building, you know, it went from that stuff to now all the trauma and death with ski patrol, now all the trauma and death with park ranger. And then boom, now I'm just now starting the fire career. And um, yeah, so once I got into the fire career, it, it started taking off where I went on a string where I started having some really horrendous calls and, you know, abnormal ones that, that, you know, the whole fire, everybody knows the calls that the whole fire department talks about. It's like, wow, who was on that call? Well, it was me quite a few times. I had, you know, I had, a, I remember the first, the first call that actually went on with Clackamas, we ended up cracking a guy, which like, I just thought, oh, this is normal. But then he realized how many times you don't do that in the fire service. And so I was getting a lot of exposure and a lot of really good experience. And I really want I'm, I'm an EMT basic. I'm not a paramedic, but I really wanted to be a super basic. I wanted to be able to get in there. I wanted to handle the calls. I wanted to help the paramedics the best that I could. And essentially I wanted to do all the stuff until the paramedic had to step in. So I really tried to learn. And fortunately, Clackmas is notorious for having really, really good medical care standards and bringing all of their basics up to super basic status and their paramedics are next level paramedics. They're really, really great at that stuff. 
Um, so I was very fortunate with that, but it just started, you know, it just started progressing to where, um, I was having problems with our relation, with my relationship with my girlfriend at the time, uh, we were living together. She wasn't telling her conservative Christian family in Texas that we were living together. So it was a big lie. And so trying to deal with that at the same time, it was just causing problems. Plus, you know, um, just because once I got on the fire department, I was still stressed and I still kept eating more. I, my first year, my first probie year, when you're supposed to be top physical shape, um, I think I gained like 20 pounds back or something. Cause I was just eating again and trying to cope with all that stuff. And I'm, I'm fortunate that alcohol has never been my thing, you know, never been my coping strategy. Uh, drugs have never been my coping strategy, but food has always been my coping strategy for or unhealthy coping strategy for stress. And so I just started doing that again. Then um, ended up moving out of the girlfriend's house because we broke up. And then I moved into a travel trailer, literally out in the middle of nowhere in the woods. And now I'm isolating and I'm spending all my time in the woods. And I think I'm being healthy because I'm like, oh, I like being out in the woods and all this kind of stuff. But I remember just being very lonely and stressed out and desperate and just eating, eating and eating. And um, really, like, I, I had no goals. I didn't even know where I was going to go with my career. At this point, I was like, I'm just here doing this at the time. And I thought, well, I've reached the pinnacle because I've reached the dream career that every little boy has about being a firefighter. I've reached it. I'm here. This is, you know, Clackness is one of the best on the West Coast. I said, cool. Now what? I had this feeling again. So it's kind of that same feeling that I had in Mexico when I was like, I feel selfish. <clears throat> and I think a lot of it was just, I, di I didn't realize the internal coping stuff that was going on, the, the PTSD stuff that was really rearing its head. Having the nightmares, man, my irritability got horrendous. I was angry. I was snappy at people. Once I got off probation, um, I really got a chip on my shoulder because I was like, well, I'm invincible now, you know, dumb thought to have in the fire service. But, you know, I was just like, okay, well, I've got some seniority now at the time. Clackmas was hiring a bunch of new guys and I did have seniority. I mean, I'm, I moved up in this seniority rank fast because they hired 40 dudes after me. So now I'm getting kind of cocky, getting kind of mouthy. And I got chopped down a couple of times by some, some lieutenants who they weren't playing that game. And, um, I didn't really have a mentor or really anybody that kind of knew what was going on. I was just kind of floundering around a bit. And yeah, I was like, well, <clears throat> oh, and I, this was a big kind of change for me because instead of just asking for help, I always just was like, well, screw it. I'm going to do this instead. So we, we go on conflagrations out on the West Coast where when there's big wildfires, they will send out uh, crews from these different fire departments to go fight these wildfires alongside the Forest Service and everything else. And I love wildland fire. And this goes back to my time in Texas fighting wildland fire there. And one day they called me into work. They're like, hey, you want to go on a conflag? I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Sign me up. I love going on conflags. I said, okay, pack your bags, come in. Well, I get there. And they decided to send a probie that was lower ranking than me on the, on the conflag instead of me. And I was furious. I mean, I just got so mad at the whole thing through a fit. And I said, okay, well, if this is the game that they're going to play, then I'm going to get on an incident management team. So good thing is one of those, my strengths is that I can, when I put my mind to something, I do it. 
And bad thing is, is a lot of times I do it out of spite, which is not a good, <laughs> good quality to have. So I did actually go get all my certifications. I paid for them myself to go get all the certifications to become a public information officer on the state incident management team. And I said, well, if they won't take me on con flags as a firefighter, I'll just jump and I'll just be a public information officer. So that's what I did. And then between uh, 2018 and 2020, I was an incident. Uh, I was on the incident management team as a PIO and got to do some really cool stuff. I, I got deployed more than I could ever imagine. I was on fires constantly, made a ton of money just because I was gone all the time, you know, um, wasn't dating anybody at the time. I was living in a travel trailer half the time. And so I was just gone constantly. And I loved it, camping out, hanging out with the dudes. And what's funny is that I was, this whole time I was looking for camaraderie. But when you get on the incident management team, all of a sudden, nobody wants to talk to you because you're part of the command. And so I was at this weird place where I was still a firefighter, a low-ranking firefighter, but I was a PIO working for the incident commander and with the governor of Oregon. So I was really in this weird twilight zone where I did not feel like I belonged in anywhere. And so still floundering around, still feeling alone during the whole time. Um, and then uh, I came back and I was like, well, I need to figure out something different. This I'm having fun on these fires, but it was getting old real fast. You know, it's just constantly being gone. So I ended up promoting, taking all the tests, going to the academy and promoting to engineer. Loved engineer. Loved getting put out uh, at the station that I wanted to be at. And I had a fantastic crew. It was one of my favorite crews that I've ever had. And that went on for a while where it was really good, where I really enjoyed it. But just felt myself losing interest. And this is towards, this is towards the end of my career. Now we're in, we're looking at 2020, you know, pandemic pops up and, um, you know, Clackmas at the time had horrendous wildfire come through the Riverside fire, lost a bunch of homes in our County. It lost our 911 system. It was just a mess. And then we had a ice storm that came through too and wreaked havoc all in the same year. And at the time I was like, man, I need to do something different. I had bought in a cabin out in the woods and once again, living by myself out there, feeling lonely. And I started looking at moving out of state. I was like, I, I was just getting tired of Oregon. You know, I, I missed the cowboy lifestyle is really kind of nagging at me. So that's when I started looking at moving and um, yeah, just from there, I, I wouldn't pull the trigger. I was like, I need, I need to do something. I felt like I needed to make a change because now I'm just going through the motions. And the real wake up call was that I was getting irritated at work and I got a nickname. They called me Earl. Earl was my alter ego. That was basically an angry old man. And now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a two year engineer, but they're treating me like I'm a, you know, veteran 30 year engineer, just crusty and angry and yelling at traffic and all that stuff. And, um, so I knew something needed to change, but I didn't know what it was. So that's when I really started looking into the PTSD thing. Now, I know you had an incident as well outside of work, um, something I've talked about a lot. When I look back, I, th I would say if I can attribute, you know, the, the biggest kind of negative pressure in my career wasn't. I'm so fortunate I don't have the nightmares. I don't have the flash. I have one flashback ever, um, which was, you know good because it gave me an insight to what some people deal with all the time 
but it for me it was the inability to save i know you've referred to yourself as a, as a black cloud and i was too sometimes in a great way going to amazing fires and you know really interesting calls but i'm also the black flag as a paramedic and an and emt prior where if you went to cardiac arrest i'd never got anyone back in 14 years none zero which is very unheard of, especially my last department had code saves at the yin yang and they had the highest, um, you know, ratio of the whole country, not me. <laughs> so, you know, that inability to save is in itself, you know, a, a real, very crushing element because as you know, we're trained, you do X, Y, and Z, the person jumps up, they hug you, the family make you a cake and then off you go. Not in, you know, not in the real world. So, Talk to me about that one particular event. I just had a friend of mine, we're actually um, doing an interview tomorrow, who made an amazing grab from a wreck in a car fire and made the news. Everyone's a hero. Beautiful. But obviously, there are a lot of incidents where that isn't the case. So I know this was a kind of, you know, tipping point for you. So to tell me about that scene and kind of, you know, walk me through from there on onwards. Yeah, so this this scene specifically, I, like you said, was the tipping point to where I was like, man, this is this hit me hard. Um, I was actually not even on duty, the irony of that whole deal, but was coming back from a friend of mine's house. And so between Sandy, Oregon and, and Mount Hood, there's this highway. I mean, we call it the death highway because it just was notorious for horrendous wrecks. It just lots of people drunk driving out there. They come down from the ski mountain they're drunk, they, you know, grind into somebody else and just smash them to pieces. And so I'm driving back and it's late at night. There's no lights out there. And as I'm driving, I'm just listening to the radio and I can see a flicker, some kind of fire up ahead. And I was like, what is this? Is this a grass fire? I couldn't tell. It was on the, kind of on the side of the road. It's like, what is that? And as soon as I start looking, I start hitting debris in the road and I'm running it over. I was like, oh no, this must be an accident. And I pull up right next to the cars. There's no other cars around at this point. I mean, it's pretty late and it's a head-on collision. And these cars are just mangled. Like it is a massive grinder at this point. And the engine compartments are on fire, you know, just, just small little flickering flames at this point. And so I knew I was like, oh, we got, I got to figure this out quick. And I'm the only one there. And so I jump out and I get my fire extinguisher. I thought, man, if I could stop the fire, then I got time with everything else. Well, I go over and I douse this, try to douse this fire and nothing happens. It doesn't even touch it. You know, it's just a, it's just a small little fire extinguisher that I carry. Doesn't even touch it. And I thought, okay, plan B. I said, and so this other woman happened to stop and she comes running up. She's like, what can I do? I said, call 911 and tell them what's going on and tell them where we are. I say, I got to get these people out this car because now the engine's starting to it's starting to burn a lot more and i go to try to open so the the fronts of the cars are just completely smashed the doors are just jammed in can't do anything with them so i'm trying to open the back doors of all these cars of course they're all locked for whatever reason they're all locked and i go to pull out my knife which has a window punch on it and i didn't have my knife on me i carry that knife everywhere that i go it goes with me on work you know hangs on the radio harness it's with me everywhere I go. For some reason that night, that night, I didn't have my knife on me. And so like a complete civilian, I'm trying to break these windows and can't get in. It, everything I'm trying, I can't get into these stupid windows. And, you know, we, we train on this, but every time we train on it, we have window punches and, you know, like, okay, cool. You got a spark plug and get the ceramic off and break the window that way. But in real time, when you're racing these fires, you know, it, it's just like, I can't get these stupid windows broken. So I'm smashing on it with the, with the fire extinguisher, 
can't get them broke. So I run around to one of the cars and this guy shows up and he's got a shovel. He's like, I don't know what to do, but here, can you use this? I'm like, yeah, I can. So I jam it into the door frame and I'm able to pry the door back enough with the shovel that I could kind of crawl in there. And I could see the driver down on underneath the floorboard. He's pinned under, under the dash. And my first goal was to make sure nobody else was in there. I was like, there could be kids in the back seat of these cars. I couldn't see through the windows because all the side airbags. So I have no idea what's inside these cars. So I crawl in with my feet sticking out still out of the door and I'm trying to pull this guy back out. Well, he is completely mangled. I mean, I can, I could tell just even through the smoke that this guy's probably not alive. And so I reach down and I find and I'm feeling for a pulse and I don't feel anything. And my hand is covered in blood and brain matter. And I'm like, okay, this, this guy's not viable. And so I look in the back seat real quick, no kids, no car seats or anything. I'm like, okay. So I jump out. And at this point, a cop had showed up and he said, what can I do to help? I said, start smashing windows, get that baton out, smash windows. I need to get in. So he just starts breaking windows. And I said, this guy over here is dead. Um, don't worry about him. So I go over to the first car and by this point, the flames are just pretty much, it's already engulfed the car that I was just in. And it's starting to impinge on the engine compartment in the second car. The front smashed, can't get in there. I tried going through the trunk because the trunk had been popped open. I'm trying to kick the seats through, but it's jammed because it's kind of collapsed in there. Can't get through there, run around. And at this point, I mean, the fire's huge. And I grabbed the cop's flashlight and I said, don't let me die in this car. I said, pull me out. I said, if I start screaming in there, pull me out. Do not let me burn up in here. And so I crawled through the back window, left my foot hanging out so he could pull me out. And I find the driver and he's a fairly obese man, but he's slumped over the steering wheel. And it is smoky in there. I can't see anything. I can kind of feel him. And I'm like, he's he can't be alive, you know? And so I start to get back out and the, there's a woman screaming, he's moving. And I thought, no. It's like, he, okay, he's alive, I guess. So I go back in there and I'm trying to pull him back through the, uh, between the two seats, but the roof is collapsed. There's not much room in there. And so I'm trying to pull him through these two seats and I'm trying to get his seatbelt off. Um, and then I kind of flop his face over. Well, when his face flops over, it's completely smashed and he's agonal breathing. That's what the moving was. He's agonal breathing. I'm like, okay, he's, he's, he's not viable either. I said, I'm just going to have to leave him in here. I look around, make sure no one else is in there. By this point, his feet were already on fire. My knuckles, I was wearing leather gloves that I got out of my truck and my knuckles were burned through the leather. That's how hot it was in there. The top of my ears were burned and I'm trying to get out and someone sticks a fire extinguisher through the window and blasts me in the face. Like I, I know that it was just some, it was a citizen trying to help, but they stuck that fire extinguisher and blasting me in the face. Now I can't breathe. Now I can't see. And now I'm stuck in a car. Well, um, the cop starts pulling my feet. I'm like, cool. <laughs> at least, at least he's following instructions. And so he pulls me out and I'm gagging and throwing up because I've got fire extinguisher in my mouth, you know, and my hands are all covered in blood and I'm covered in blood. And for some reason at that point, what happened with the fire department, the, the one that was closest, they had gone on a medical call somewhere way off in the middle of nowhere. When they heard the car fire, they diverted to it. But what it did was me mess up the entire AVL system so it didn't tap the next available engine, which would have been closer. So that engine never even got tapped. 
And so essentially we sat there and we watched a bonfire with people in it. And I've got civilians running around screaming, crying. They're sitting there watching. I mean, they're just watching these guys. You can, at this point, the fire had already burned the side airbags. So you could clearly see the guy in there burning up. Um, you know, and people are screaming at me to do something. And I'm like, they don't know I'm a firefighter at this point either. I, I just was the guy that was trying to help. And so, um, and then one woman kept trying to run over there. So I like physically had to hold her and I was just giving her a hug. And I, was, I just told her, I said, you know, it, there's nothing we can do. He's gone. They're, they're both gone. I said, they were dead on impact. So they're not suffering. And they couldn't fathom why the fire department wasn't there putting out this fire. They, they just couldn't understand what's taken them so long. Um, so I'm trying to explain, you know, like, Hey, they're probably on another call. One of the chiefs from Clytemus showed up and I just told him, I was like, Hey, you know, they're not viable. They're, they're dead. So we can slow everything down. I was like, you cancel life flight, <laughs> you know, don't need an ambulance either. Um, but that moment was very traumatic. Um, the, the smells and everything just really stuck with me and just the burning, <clears throat> you know, every firefighter smelled burning flesh. Well, when you're in that car with them, it's really potent. It was all over my body. I couldn't get it off my clothes. I ended up throwing the clothes away. Um, it was in my hair. So that one really kind of triggered it for me. Well, again, firstly, I mean, what a horrific wreck. Secondly, here you are nursing two corpses yet again. And thirdly, with all the training and all the experience, you know, there's that inability to save. So now add those to all the layers we've talked about before and the sleep deprivation from shift work. And you know, now you've got this you know, perfect storm again. So, you know, what were the weeks, months, years uh, following that? Well, following that, fortunately, I had a really good crew who asked me if I was OK. They, they were willing to talk about it. I wasn't, though. I told the story, but I wasn't truly okay with talking about all that stuff. And so, um, <clears throat> from that, I was in, at this point as dating another girl and completely wrecking that whole relationship. Also, you know, it was just, this was a pattern in my life. I was irritable. I was angry. Um, you know, I never was abusive or anything like that, but emotionally I could look back and say, I probably was. And, um, I feel bad for the women that did date me at the time because I was not a healthy version of myself. And so, <clears throat> um, Going from that is when I realized, like, I really need to do something to to address this issue. I was like, I think I've got PTSD. And I ended up reading a book by a guy named Traver Boehm, and he wrote a book called Man Uncivilized. I was really, I was really going down the rabbit hole trying to figure out men's work. I said, I'm, you know, I want to be a strong man. And I read this book, Man Uncivilized, and <laughs> Of course, good old big brother, Instagram, gave me an ad for one of Traver's workshops. It was a weekend workshop in Colorado, and it was a couple of thousand dollars, but I was like, I'm desperate at this point. So I took leave, and I just went. I knew nothing about this other than the book I read. I knew nothing about the work. And uh, when I got there, it was at this place in Colorado, at this lodge in Colorado that they'd rented, and there was probably 25 men there and it's funny because i've looked back and seen the pictures from the event i i was sitting on this couch and you know they took a picture of the group i'm sitting on the couch and i'm holding this pillow up against my chest like completely guarding like scared to death to be there and i was trying to mask it by telling all the guys like be funny you know it's like oh i don't really know what i'm doing here i guess we're gonna find out blah 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 well they knew better and through that entire 
weekend, we went over all kinds of things. I mean, just extremely powerful work from guys, which was <clears throat> something that I never experienced before in my life. Um, just a bunch. I mean, there was there were guys there that were former military. There was some first responders that were there. There was an opera singer there. I mean, just guys trying to become better men and dealing with all this stuff. And it wasn't primarily PTSD related, but it was just men's work about being men. And that was the first time I think I've ever cried around a bunch of guys. And we did deep work. I did polytropic breathing for the first time, which was the wildest experience because I honestly felt like I was on psychedelics and I was shaking so hard that I was like, what is going on? I'm not cold, but I, I'm shaking like I'm cold. And they said it was the tension leaving my central nervous system. And all this stuff was fascinating because to me, it was all woo-woo, spiritual, weird stuff that I never wanted to have anything to do with. And it genuinely, that workshop changed my life and kind of kicked me off on the path that I am now. And I think because of that workshop, I ended up making the decision to leave the fire service and do what I do now. So I know there was kind of like a final event when you got moved shifts and stations and everything. When I heard, you know, when I read that, when you sent me the kind of overview, I love the fire service. And had I stayed in Anaheim and not gone down this road and not, you know, had the relationship things that happened, I may well still be wearing Anaheim uniform to this day. But the universe, and you say, again, we talk about not having a knife with the window punch and the wind, you know, doors all being locked. They're, they're you know, sometimes it's just their time, you know, and clearly that was the case then. But um, the last department I was put at was one that was like, all right, here's the other side of the coin. Here's the worst side of the fire service. Here's you not be able to change anything, really. Now, fuck off at the fire service and go find a way of, of making a difference from the outside. And that was literally what God, the universe, had, had done for me. I adore the fire service. I love fighting fires. I love all the truly emergent calls. Hate the bullshit, but the, what we're actually supposed to be there for and will do till the day I die. But there was another path that I was supposed to go on to make a difference and be the voice of this profession that I adore. So talk to me about the kind of final straw and then and then let's kind of walk through to the ranch. Okay, well it's yeah, I love that you said that because yeah, you're on a on a new mission now and I'm on a new mission now. And you know, people talk about like, oh yes, I used to be a firefighter, but I, you know, I love how the Marines do things. Like once a Marine, always a Marine. Well, once you've been a firefighter, whether it's a volunteer or a full-time firefighter, you're always a firefighter. You've You've done that. You've been there. You've seen it. And we all have something that we can relate to in that. Whether you've been in a slow department or a busy one, you've still run horrendous calls. You've still fought fires. You've still dealt with car wrecks. And so going on to a new mission is and, and having the wherewithal to know that you can actually change lives in a different way is incredibly powerful. And so the, the catalyst for me eventually leaving is I... Um, well, there was there was a call where it was just a, a routine death, just a just an old guy who died in his chair. And I remember we had to wait because the police weren't able to come out there. So in Oregon, all the police have to come to deaths and you know, write the death certificate and all this stuff. And at the time, it was right before lunch, and we had left cooking to go to this call, and it was just a mundane alpha, you know, 
death that obvious death, but we're having to stand there and basically babysit. And now the family shows up and, you know, there, this guy was in his nineties. He had congestive heart failure. Like it's a miracle. He made it to the point that he made it. And he died in his chair at home watching TV, perfectly happy. They said he never wanted to go into a home. So he wanted to die at home and he did it. And, but you know, the family sat obviously. And I remember sitting there on the front porch and just thinking like, I don't care Uh, that, you know, they're crying and going on and we're sitting there. And I said, I don't really care. I had zero empathy in my body at the time. I was like, we just want to go back. We want to finish cooking our lunch so we can take a nap, a safety nap, and then, you know, carry on with the rest of our shift because we're probably going to have more of these today or whatever different calls. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, wow. I said, if that's how you feel, you need to get out of this career. You know, and in the cowboy world, we have this saying that says, if you can't ride for the brand, you need to leave because, you know, each ranch has its own brand and they have their own way of doing things. And if you can't do the way that they do things, you need to leave. And so I was like, well, am I not riding for this brand right now? Do You know, if I'm losing empathy for something like this, maybe I'm in the wrong career. Maybe it's caught up with me. Maybe I need to do something different. And so I really started thinking, I was like, okay, well, what will I do? I was like, you know, I was looking at maybe it's just the area that I'm living in. Maybe I'll do long distance commuting. Maybe I'll move back to Texas and I'll fly in and work my shifts and fly out, you know, all the kind of weird traveling schedules that firefighters do. I was looking at doing that. And I ended up going down to Austin for an Aubrey Marcus event with Fit for Service. And when I was down there, it, we'd gotten into some really deep conversations about different things, about following your passions and your true mission in life. And the day that I had a conversation with one of the people there about like, I really want to do something different. I don't know if the fire service is me for me anymore. I got notified that I got bumped from my station, the station that I worked hard to get at that I really loved, got bumped from my station, got cross shifted to a new shift. And they'd also moved my Kelly day to where it shortened my Kelly week. So I lost a full day in my Kelly rotation. And at this point, like I'd already, I travel a bunch. And so I had all of these dates already planned out all my vacation stuff that I'd already planned my trips and they just shifted it and didn't even like, you know, I don't want to sound whiny because I know this stuff happens in the fire service and they got to put you where, where they need to put you. But for me at the time, it was really the catalyst to where I'm like, I felt like a number again like I did in the military. And that's one of the reasons I left the military is it didn't feel like I had a brotherhood or camaraderie. I just felt like a number. And I got that feeling again. And I understand that the fire department had to do what they had to do, but it was the lack of caring that really irritated me. And instead of throwing a fit about it though, I said, well, this is just not for me anymore. I, I need to move on and I need to do something that's more meaningful. And so I just took the rest of the time while I was down in Austin to really kind of come up with a plan which eventually led to me deciding to start my own company and work with people with special needs. And then also working in the world of PTSD and, and counseling and things like that. So you're transitioning out the fire service. I mean, what made you think about the ranch? How did you find the one you ended up on? Um, and then, you know, the, the element of funding that you kind of weave in to allow you to create the funds that you need for the actual nonprofit side. Okay. So offering heart wellness retreats is my company name and the direction I wanted to go 
is there's a ranch down here in Elgin, Texas, and it's called Down Home Ranch. Down Home Ranch provides a living, working ranch for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So it can range from autism spectrum to Down syndrome. It started out as a home for adults with Down syndrome. It is now kind of morphed into anybody with IDD. And it's a one of the coolest places on the planet that I've ever seen because it's a community where these adult members, they live, they work vocational opportunities, they sow, they work with livestock, they work uh, in the local grocery stores in the community. It's very intertwined with the community. And the way that these ranchers live and work should be how the majority of the society does it. They are extremely happy. They have friends. They have activities. They they live in these, um, they call them micro homes. So some of them live in micro homes. Some of them live in group homes with roommates. But the ranch facility itself, they have set it up so well. So they, they sell farm fresh eggs, like pasture raised eggs. They have a herd of cattle where they sell Angus Wagyu beef. They've got a horse program where the ranchers can work with horses and do like therapy horse type stuff. And I'm just a big fan of it. And it's something that I was interested in getting my brother to live on. You know, he's, he's been living with my mom. My mom's getting older, starting to have some health problems. So I said, well, maybe now's the time that we look to get an heir living on the ranch. So from that, I ended up just moving down here. We signed Aaron up for summer camp. Um, so he went to summer camp and I just moved down to this area. And I said, I'm just going to start volunteering here at the ranch until I figure out what to do. And so long story short, my company has now morphed into where I do corporate wellness retreats for big tech companies. And the tech companies either can do virtual or in-person offsite retreats. They call them offsite retreats, but it's for morale building and team building and things like that. But for a long time, a lot of these companies do retreats that don't really have any kind of meaning or education. It's just fun stuff, which is fine. But I wanted to offer a retreat that teaches about neurodiversity because there is a high percentage of folks that work in the tech industry that are neurodiverse. And a lot of them are on the autism spectrum, whether they're coders or engineers, they're incredibly good at their job, but they think differently than a lot of other people or neuro uh, typicals is, is the, uh, you know, neurotypical someone without any kind of spectrum disorder, but I wanted to be able to raise money for the ranch while, while also starting my own business. So now what I do with my business is that I have these retreats. We host it at the ranch. I pay different ranchers to talk about their story and to teach people. And we have a panel interview where the members from these tech companies can just ask ask questions, real life questions to get their perspective on how they see the world and how these ranchers think differently. And it's, it's really picking up steam. We have a lot of different companies that are interested now, some big partnerships that are starting to take off. And if it all goes well, it should be able to raise quite a bit of money for the ranch. Another aspect that we're taking now is hosting PTSD retreats with horse therapy for first responders. And so we're looking at partnering with different police departments, fire departments. Um, we're looking at working with dispatchers because they usually fall through the cracks and people forget about the dispatchers, nurses, doctors, the whole gamut. Um, we're trying to trying to do some partnerships there where we can actually host 
some retreats because it's got the space, it's got the infrastructure, it's got the horses. All we need is to have the people come in and help with it. So that's the partnerships I'm working on right now. I've had a good few good calls lately about getting some people in to teach and do different things like that. Uh, but I think it has a lot of potential to help quite a few people. No, it's amazing. And that circles all the way back to wrangling in um, you know, the farm and, and learning under Buck, because here we are again, you've been through this amazing journey and now this brought you back to the ranch. But before you were, you know, initially learning to be a horseman, and now you've got this whole mental health journey and this this lived experience that is so important for buy-in for a lot of these people to then come around and, and show, you know, the, the healing element of equine therapy and community. Very much very much so. The the community is a huge aspect. I'm glad you touched on that because it's, you know, uh, people with special needs don't serve as inspiration. They're not here as an inspiration piece for other people. They're living their lives doing, they're living their life how they can in their own unique way. And what we're teaching with the neurodiversity piece is that they're valuable members of companies and communities, and they just think differently it's, and they communicate differently. And so it's just like if someone speaks Chinese and someone speaks English, it's just a different way of communication. Well, that translates really well into the horse world. I mean, to work with horses, it's mostly nonverbal. It's all energy-based and body language-based. And being able to use the aspect of teaching with horses in the world of teaching neurodiversity, intentional communication within corporate companies is huge. And it's something that hasn't been done before. It's a new idea. And these companies are very, very excited about it. And because the infrastructure of the ranch already exists, we could, you know, my company, is just basically handles logistics. And we take anybody who wants to do a retreat, and we just set the retreat up for them. And so whether it has anything to do with neurodiversity or not, that it's still supporting this ranch, that it's a source of income to keep this ranch evergreen and keep it running because, I mean, they have 37 buildings, they have staff, you know, it's an expensive enterprise to keep running, but it's an incredible mission. And so I just found a way to kill a couple of birds with a couple of stones and be able to host these retreats there and really make a difference. And then now I'm really excited about bringing in the first responder aspect of it also and potentially being able to do some really good work there. You just reminded me, it's, it's funny how closed down my mind is. Like I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. When I started writing my book, I had totally forgotten that we almost died in a house fire when I was four, my sister and myself and my younger brother, um, and totally locked it away. Never even gave it a thought when I joined the fire service that that was probably connected in some way, shape or form. And obviously not in a negative way because I love fire. So it, it wasn't like it, you know, I created a fear of fire, quite the opposite. But when I talk about the fact that I was able to seemingly be given the tools to deal with the shit that we see and do purely by chance, each one of us is at mercy of our upbringing. I totally forgot. I grew up on, you know, my father was an equine vet, a veterinarian. So I grew up with horses the whole time. I rode. Now, from what I understand from my parents, I look more like those monkeys that they strapped to greyhounds than anyone that's graceful riding. But it was more like the old Western stuntman style riding. <laughs> I got flung off so many times. But I had, did have this deep connection with the horses. And a lot of times they were other people's that they would be with us while my dad was treating them or they'd be boarding. Um, so 
in that respect, you got to deal with, you know, got to meet and, and work with a lot of different horses of all shapes and sizes. But I never really kind of put those two together that, yeah, I actually, I had, had dogs growing up. I had horses growing up. So I had that inbuilt in my childhood, which is yet another layer that probably gave me some of that growth from the early trauma to give that resilience when I went into the fire service where some of my, you know, uh, men and women that I serve alongside maybe didn't have that healing. And then that's why they struggled when they were wearing the uniform. Very much so. Yeah, that goes back to just exposure, you know, exposure therapy, basically. And that's like we talked about earlier with fitness, you know, just training your body to function under stress. And so, you know, with childhood trauma, it could go one or two ways. You could actually get stronger from it and learn to adapt, or it could be very detrimental in your adult life. Just depends on which way it goes. And some people have no choice in that matter, and they suffer some very severe mental illnesses. But, um, you know, talking about neurodiversity, I mean, look at, you know, we were talking about patients earlier. Look at coworkers. I bet you every person that's listening to this podcast could think of one coworker, at least one, where they think, oh, yeah. I bet you they're on the autism spectrum. Well, B-shift, like we talked about before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, in the fire service, they usually get made fun of a little bit and that they're quirky and, you know, they're they're loved because people love their coworkers. But at the same time, a lot of them do not feel understood and don't feel like they can communicate very well. And maybe they come across as moody or loners or just, you know, that weird quirky guy in the fire station that's got his own little, you know, quirks and folds his shirts a certain way or whatever. Um, you know, if you really dive into it, you realize that neurodiversity is all around us. And it's something that, you know, we've talked about awareness and all this kind of stuff. But one thing, now that I'm around it constantly on the ranch and I am learning about it and I'm reading about it, it's humbling me about how much I don't know about the the whole uh, situation about the whole topic, because there's just levels upon levels of levels. And it's imperative that, yeah, we build awareness for it, but at the same time, like we learn about it. And that's kind of my goal about teaching is that neurodiversity is a great thing to have. It's, it provides diversity and inclusion. And that's a big buzzword right now, but neurodiverse people, can bring a lot to the table and just because they do things differently doesn't mean they do things wrong. You know, maybe we do things wrong. Like I look, like I said earlier, I look at my brother, I'm like, well, I wish I could be half as patient as he is. And can you imagine not having the ability to hold a grudge? That would be incredible. And, you know, if you look at it, it's almost a superpower that he has is that he's just so easygoing and just, you know, he's present. I mean, we go to meditation classes and, try to find Zen and all this stuff. And then my brother's naturally got it. He is just there when he's there and he pretty much lives in the state of Zen, which is pretty impressive. So it's, uh, you know, it's just something that I hope we can bring the message to people and we can teach them about it and get people involved. Um, whether it's in the fire service or the corporate world, or if anybody needs help with any of the stuff that we've talked about, like reach out to somebody. Well, you touch on autism. There's one person I can think of that flashes in my mind immediately who I worked with very recently. He ended up passing away from, uh, I think, an accidental opioid overdose. 
definitely on the spectrum. Super intelligent, amazing with with tech, um, but super introverted as well. Very kind of socially awkward, and I mean that in a, in a in a in a endearing way. Um, but yeah, I think he probably felt so isolated, and even not even so much on the spectrum. The number of people that have come on that outwardly you think, wow, that's you know that's a, the life of the party. How many of us are actually introverts? And we yes. struggle, and many people, you know, say, "I drink so I can feel comfortable around people." And what a terrible reason to drink, <laughs> you know. If that's yeah. the case, spend more time in intimate settings with your closest friends, with your partner, with your children, and and don't worry about you know being at this party. But yeah, so whether it's the autistic spectrum or you know the social spectrum, whatever it is, if you are not feeling understood by that tribe that you're supposed to be a part of. That can not only you know be a challenge. It can, I'm I'm sure, more often than not, send people down a very dark path of depression and maybe even lead to taking their own life accidentally or deliberately. Yeah, very much so. I think I don't know the numbers. Like I said, I'm just learning all this stuff myself. But um, I think that you could probably look at substance abuse, and it ties in very very closely with neurodiverse people. Um, you know, you look. Like I said, I came from Portland, Oregon, where the homeless population there is is out of control. And I bet you we could really dig deep and find out that the majority of those people who get blamed for being on drugs or alcohol, like they chose that life somehow, really were trying to numb themselves because they didn't fit into society or they have trouble communicating or they're somewhere, they're IDD, I'm, you know, psychiatric patients in general where they have schizophrenia and they're, they're doing drugs because they're trying to get the voices to stop. Um, my empathy for substance abusers has really grown quite a bit. The more I've learned about this, because, you know, we just, you don't know what you don't know, but if you don't learn, that makes you ignorant because you could be ignorant to facts about things. And I, for a very, very long time, I was ignorant to a lot of things in this realm, but I'm choosing to learn about it and to change the way I look at things. And I look back at the way we handled some of our patients when I'm like, okay, definitely could have been more patient, could have been more kind, could have been more empathetic. Maybe they aren't druggies. Maybe they're trying to mask something and trying to stop the voices or stop the pain from whatever they've experienced. Because usually they get into that in order to stop something. I mean, look at alcohol and the amount of firefighters that drink just trying to numb the pain and numb the memories and numb the nightmares or whatever um, because it's socially acceptable because it's legal. I mean, if meth was legal and they were, everybody was doing meth, that doesn't mean it's healthy for you. It's just, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's good for you. So, um, you know, I, I am against drinking as a coping mechanism for sure. I don't drink anymore at all because it never served me any good purposes in my life. I mean, it made me feel sick and made me fat and d- more depressed and angry and anxious. So I just don't drink anymore uh, to the point now to where, you know, I'd rather eat healthy, drink lots of water, get a good night's sleep and hang out with people who, you know, like the ranchers that live on the ranch and are just loving life are just happy that everybody's there. And then the people that live in the community around us that support that ranch are just all good hearted people. So Lots of masking going on with substance abuse. Absolutely. Well, circling around to the ranch, 
So are you back with your brother now on the ranch? So he just came down, went to summer camp. He absolutely loved summer camp. Went back up to Arkansas for a little while. He's going to be coming down in July to do his what's called the respite program. So he's going to do a trial run for a week. Mind you, he's never been around folks with IDD in his entire life. He has never met anybody like him. And we were genuinely concerned at how he would handle that when he went to summer camp. Well, he ended up having a lot of fun, you know, and um, I asked him if he made any friends and he said no. But whenever I would see him, he'd just be sitting around. It's it's funny because they do things differently. Some of them do things very differently. He makes friends by just being near people. He doesn't have to talk to people. He doesn't have to. He just content to be around them. And so I did a little surprise visit at their bunkhouse one time. It was just him and a group of these guys sitting around just kind of looking at each other. No one was talking. But I asked Aaron, I was like, are you guys having fun? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're having a lot of fun. So he said, okay, well, if he's having fun and that's what he says, then I completely believe him. And he, um, he's been talking about it nonstop after camp. He said he had a blast. He had fun fishing and shooting archery. And he is excited to move to the ranch. So hopefully all that works out well. And then he'll be a permanent resident there. And I think this is the area that I'll probably stay in and you know, run my business with supporting the ranch at the same time. Amazing. Well, for people listening then, how can they learn more about um, your nonprofit and then how can they donate? Okay. So first of all, my company is Offering Heart and they can find it at www.offeringheart.com. They can find Downhome Ranch at downhomeranch.org. And they also have YouTube videos and all that kind of good stuff. They can donate directly to Downhome Ranch on their website. They have a donation page on there. And then if people just want to follow me for my own personal page on social media, it's Jake Hastings Travels on Instagram. But if anybody has any questions or wants to get involved, I would be more than happy. I could talk about this stuff all day long. And I'm looking for connections and partnerships. And I would love to get on more podcasts because, you know, I I feel like there's a lot of messages that we can get out here, uh, whether it's the PTSD world, which is one side of it, or the neurodiversity side of it. But, um, you know, I have no shame in asking for donations for the ranch because if you need a place to put your money, that's a great place to put it, bettering the lives of people with intellectual disabilities. Beautiful. Well, I want to ask you about book recommendations in a sec, but before I do, I know you're working on one. So just give me a kind of overview of that and when people can expect it. Okay. So, yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, I am writing a book. And should have it published mid next year is the goal right now. Just working through it. Uh, it's called Chasing Badass. And it's my story about spending you know, 13 years in uniform services chasing the title of badass. And so it's just stories, a lot of, a lot of those trauma stories, some funny stories in there. But spending the time chasing the title of badass, looking for validation, trying to be a man, and coming full circle to realizing that truly being a badass is taking care of people that need help. And so, um, you know, that's, that's the story right there. And I'm excited to release it just to tell the story and hopefully it gets out of the message about this ranch and we'll talk about neurodiversity in it also. Brilliant. Well, you certainly got a lot of stories to use. That's for sure. Um, so my first of the closing questions then, that's your book. Are there any books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Well, um, one of the biggest life-changing books for me was Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins because 
talk about a dude who's been through a lot and you talk about childhood trauma. That guy has been through a lot and he's intense for a lot of people, very intense. And you either like him or you don't like him at all. But um, I think it's an incredible book. He did a great job telling his story and I recommend that book to a lot of people. Brilliant. All right. What about a movie and or documentary? Ooh, uh, movie or documentary. Well, I would say Life in Color is a really good documentary. I believe that's what it's called. Uh, essentially, the story was there's a child who is on the autism spectrum who is nonverbal and then one day started communicating with his parents through Disney movie lines. And the entire story is about how they essentially had to memorize every line from every Disney cartoon in order to communicate with him because he would only communicate in character voices through the movies, through movie lines. And it does a really good job talking about um, people with special needs and IDD and the autism spectrum disorders. Uh, I definitely recommend that one to people. I haven't heard that uh, mentioned before, but my God, what an incredible story. It's pretty fascinating. I'll probably watch it again today now that we've talked about it. I haven't seen it in a while, but that's one that pops out to me. Fantastic. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I think I would have to go with a guy named David Boyd. He works for the Travis Mannion Foundation. And now he's working with Traver Boehm with Man Uncivilized, but he is a former firefighter, former cop and former military. Uh, I think he was army, but he was one of the guys that was at the uncivilized with me and really helped me break through because he was this macho badass. You know, he's got full sleeves going on. Uh, he was a macho guy, but he gave me a lot of the permission to just kind of open up and realize that, hey, he was here doing the same kind of work. And now he's doing a ton of work to really change people's lives and very invested in the military community as well as the first responders. So I can get you in touch with him. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I met um, Travis's. Well, actually, I didn't meet. We, we kind of went back and forth over social media, but I, I listened to her talk, but it's his sister. Um, at oh, okay. the uh, Sandlot Jacks. So that's someone I want to get on the oh, show yeah. as well. Nice. Yeah. It'd be awesome. All right. Well, then last question. What do you do to decompress? Well, lately it's actually, it's funny because um, I've had a cold for the past couple of days and this is the first time I haven't been at the ranch for a few days and I'm going stir crazy. So used to be uh, my decompression would be going on a long walk or something, uh, which is something I still do. But honestly, being around the ranchers at the ranch and just that amount of joy really de-stresses me. And so it's great doing a job that I absolutely love now and being around people who truly enjoy life. It's very, you know, it's stress relieving for me. Now, when you think of Texas and ranch, you know, you think also of, of, uh, you know, Mexican immigrants coming over that are great with horses as well. Is there an element of that on the ranch? And if so, are there any stories of trauma from across the border that you've heard that were interesting? No, not yet. Haven't experienced any of that yet. So I can't speak to that. But, um, you know, I mean, I grew up with a lot of immigrants from Mexico being here. And yeah, talking about trauma. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, there's a lot of it down there. And, uh, you know, it's, there's little T trauma and big T trauma that they talk about mental health and everybody's trauma is different to them. And we're not supposed to compare trauma, but 
I've had some trauma and then I've met people who have horrendous trauma and I'm like, good Lord. Yeah. Yours is worse than mine. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's all the things in the world that you're supposed to say and not supposed to say and all the political correctness and all this kind of stuff. But I tell you, like some of those people are hardcore and have experienced so much in their life and they have incredible stories. And, you know, I know you brought on um, some folks from Afghanistan and things like that on your podcast. And so you're hearing some really wild stories from them, but yeah, some of these third world countries that I've been in, my goodness, the trauma that they have growing up just as kids and, and on, you know, the sex trafficking and um, all that kind of stuff, being drug running mules for cartels, having to kill people. I believe you had somebody who was a child soldier on one time, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, I did. Uh, Ishmael Bay. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is just wild. So um, I hope to get to meet people that, that are immigrants and are getting involved. But so far, I don't think there's any on the ranch that I've experienced. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because obviously we're surrounded by that. And, you know, obviously you've got Ukrainian refugees coming in now. Mm-hmm. It's another, you know, horrendous trauma for, for that poor country. But with that comparison of trauma, you know, from a medical point of view, you know, one might have a, you know, arterial bleed and one might have a venous bleed, but we're both standing there bleeding. You know what I mean? So True. that's what happens that's when you compare, <laughs> you know, yes, some might be a little bit more urgent attention than others, but ultimately the goal is to stop. And I think that's the thing with the US, with the UK, with Australia. What breaks my heart, I mean, from from a, a physical health point of view, this last two years, a complete abandonment of, you know, addressing the underlying, you know, wellness issue. And we talked about your, you know, uh, coping mechanism being food. I think that's a huge um, outlet for a lot of people, alcohol and food with their their mental trauma. But imagine if we were able to really truly address a lot of those issues in our country and, for example, address the drug prohibition that creates so much evil and crime in not only in our nation but in other nations. Imagine all the altruistic good we could do as a country and start healing those other countries as well, you know. But we're allowing these people to 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 sustain this misery in our own nation. So therefore, we're you know a lot of people's hands are tied because they're so busy trying to pull their themselves out of a hole. They haven't got the the kind of um, space to to look around and go, well, I'm actually doing well now. Who else can I help? Very much so. And yeah, you know, I know you don't talk about politics that much and i don't get into politics either but working on this ranch and seeing these ranchers and seeing members from all walks of life both all political views and different views like that come together for one common cause you know you could they can literally have voted for somebody different or have completely different political views but this ranch is almost like some kind of utopian society where it doesn't matter there because everybody there is more alike than unalike because they have the same mission to provide a space for adults with IDD to live a fulfilled and meaningful life. And so it's incredible to see what can happen when people work together instead of being divided. And so, yeah, you talk about, you know, the, the drug problems and all that kind of stuff. I mean, trust me, coming from Portland, Oregon, like I've seen that stuff with my own eyes, but it's, it, if we could get more on the same page and if people would just work for the greater good and taking care of people that need to be taken care of, if, if we always choose kindness, then we're going to be better off as a society because there's people that work at the ranch that I don't agree with their political views, but it doesn't matter because 
to this point, I'm so tired of politics and the way the clown show is is happening with media and everything like that. It's like it's just we're divided as people. And especially in the fire world and first responders is like, we're all here to take care of people. That's why we joined that fire service. And seeing the division amongst the, the, you know, at the breakfast table and things like that, it's really kind of frustrating. And I would just, I now seeing how the ranch works with people with different viewpoints, I, I think that is just a very healthy way to go about it and just live and let live. And let's really, let's look at the actual statistics. Um, and let's look at the science behind things and let's look at, you know, not think with our feelings, but we actually think with what actually needs to happen to fix the stuff. And so none of it's easy. The drug problem is definitely not easy to solve. The homeless problem is not easy to solve, but being divided, we're not going to figure it out either. No. And we tried the other way and it was an epic failure. So it's time for people to grow some balls and actually start addressing it properly. (laughs) Very much so. Well, I just want to thank you, Jake. It's been an amazing conversation. That's a perfect place to to round up, but uh, you have such a a, you know, a, a storied life with the traveling, with the different um, occupations that you've held, obviously with the mental health journey that you were, you know, courageous enough to share. But it's been a, yeah, an amazing conversation. I just thank you for being so generous with your time today. Awesome. Thanks, James. I really appreciate you having me on.